1: Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.
0: It's a long way to Tipperary, it's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary, the sweetest girl I know.
1: Hello, everyone. And welcome to History of the Great War, Episode 79. This week, I would like to thank all of the podcast's Patreon subscribers, and especially the two new supporters, Ulan and Michael. They help make this show possible for everyone who is listening, so make sure to send them some pleasant thoughts as you listen to this episode. This is our second-to-last episode on the Battle of Jutland, and it's finally time for the full power of the Grand and High Seas Fleets to meet. I should probably say that everyone might want to temper their expectations, because it will not last very long, and will be pretty much the opposite of decisive. Up to this point in the podcast, most of our discussions have been around land battles during the war. In these situations, the generals were very concerned with holding specific positions. They were also trapped by their relative immobility and holding positions once they were attacked or once they had taken some land. This is pretty much the entire reason that the Western Front happened. At sea, there were no such constraints. With the speed and mobility of ships, and the fact that they could not really hold the ground in the same way that you can on land, there were really no constraints at all. When an admiral saw that he was in a bad spot, he did not have to slowly find a way to withdraw, likely suffering many casualties in the process, like what would happen on land. Instead, he could just run away and this is exactly what Scheer would attempt to do when confronted by Jellicoe and the Grand Seas fleet. Jellicoe and Beatty would try to stop him, but they would run into a serious problem. It was already 6pm, and while sunset was very late at this time of year in the North Sea, it was still going to come eventually, and the weather wasn't helping, bringing visibility down to just 5,000 yards at some points. Over the next three hours they would do their best to close in on Sheer before darkness finally started to settle in at nine thirty. During that time there would be engages, disengages involving something called a down, <clears throat> think and then more reengages and then more disengages, all while both admirals were trying to put their ships into the best positions to engage the enemy that they could barely see. Now it is time for the largest naval battle of the war, and I think the largest one in history up to 1916, so let's get to it. We ended last episode with Jellicoe making his very important decision on how he should deploy his forces, a decision he had to make without a lot of information on where the Germans were. Sir Julian Corbett, official Royal Navy historian for the Great War, called this decision, quote, the supreme moment of naval warfare while Professor Arthur Martyr called it, quote, the peak moment of the influence of sea power upon history. I love, love, love these hyperbolic statements by historians. Regardless of how much stock he put in this specific moment and what it means in the history books, apparently those guys thought it meant a lot. Jellicoe turned his ships to port, and the battle was on. After they turned, they could see the Lion to the south and the other battlecruisers under Beatty firing to their south at an enemy that was at the moment outside of the Grand Fleet's area of vision. With the big ships turning, there was also a frantic moment of smaller ships that were trying to conform to the new course. Destroyers and light cruisers all pass right through the coalescing battle line of dreadnoughts to try and get into position, and out in front, Beatty was racing to get ahead of the fleet to get in his position at the head of the line. It would take 15 minutes for the dreadnoughts to get into proper order, and for other ships to get out of their way. And during that time, the German guns were still firing, mostly at Evan Thomas. As he came north, he expected the Grand Fleet would turn to starboard, which would put his ships right at the front of the line. Perfect. However, he soon realized that the fleet had turned the other direction, a decision which I'm sure made his men a bit disappointed, since they would be at the rear of the line instead of leading it. As the 5th Battle Squadron got close to the 1st Battle Squadron, led by the dreadnought Marlborough. It was apparent that the ships were going to come too close together, as the first squadron turned to take its place in line, and this forced Evan Thomas to quickly reduce speed and turn as hard as he could. The Valiant and the Malaya were forced to conform to this movement, and also slam on their brakes, and the final ship of the line, the Warspite, which also turned. Right as it was making its turn, the ship was hit near the stern by a German shell, This hit had the unfortunate effect of jamming the rudder 10 degrees to starboard. This could have very quickly led to disaster, but instead of slowing down, something that would have sealed its fate, the captain decided to continue at maximum speed in a circle. For a while, the warspite was being fired on by a good portion of the German ships. Something like 20 full salvos were fired at the ship as it made these big circles, because it couldn't do anything else. Miraculously, there were very few hits from these shells. I'm unable to find an exact number of hits during this time, but the ship was only hit 13 times in total during the battle, so it could not have been too many. The crew worked as fast as possible to try and get the rudder to once again work, or at least get to the point where it was not jammed in one direction. It took some time, long enough for most of the ships to move on without the warspite. When some control was restored, the Warspite tried to join the battle line once again, but Evan Thomas sent it home, and at about 9pm it started that direction. For the Warspite, the war was pretty much over, with only an accident of running into another ship to look forward to, but there would be another war in its future, a story for another day. The first shells from the British dreadnoughts at the German ships seemed to have been fired by the Marlborough at about 617 at a range of 13,000 yards. For the next 15 minutes, only about a third of the British ships could engage the Germans, and for once, it was not because of their positioning or because of the weather. Most of Jellicoe's ships had a problem. With Beatty racing in front of them to try and get ahead of the line, the amount of smoke that his ships were generating made it impossible to see the German fleet, let alone engage them. To try and reduce this problem, Jellicoe sent out an order to reduce speed to 14 knots, which would let Beatty get out of the way a lot sooner. However, not all the ships in the line received the order in time, and the battle line became a bit of a mess, quickly bunching up and having to turn out of the way to avoid collisions. One group of ships that I have not talked about much was the three battlecruisers under the command of Rear Admiral Hood. This group was made up of the Invincible, Inflexible, and Indomitable. Man, I love British ship names. And these were the three battlecruisers that had been sent north to Scapa Flow in exchange for Evan Thomas so that they could get in some gunnery practice at the better ranges used by the Grand Fleet. When they And when the battle had started, they had sailed out of Scapa Flow under the command of Jellicoe. When Hood saw how the line was developing, he made a quick decision. Generally his position would be at the rear of Beatty's ships, but with the position of Beatty, Jellicoe, and himself, he made the correct call and instead got ahead of Beatty, so as not to cause yet more confusion. This did mean, though, that these ships found themselves at the head of the entire British line and gave them the opportunity, fresh from gunnery practice, to engage the Lutzow and Derflinger at just 9,000 yards, well within their engagement range. The arrival of this new enemy put Hipper in a spot where he had to make a decision. His five battlecruisers were in pretty bad shape. His flagship, the Lutzow, was so bad that the bow was so deep in the water that the water was often sloshing over the boards. And this forced Hipper to abandon his flagship so that it could be moved out of line and head back home. He boarded a destroyer with the goal of coming alongside the Moltke to to board and resume command. Unfortunately for Hipper, the course of the battle meant that he would remain on this destroyer until 10pm without really any ability to control the course of the battle. His battlecruisers would continue to be impactful on their own as the course of events moved forward, even in their current very beat-up state where a couple of them couldn't even fire a shot. They were being fired on, but they were still able to dish out some punishment, and for the moment, most of that ability was focused on the Invincible. The Invincible was hit several times before a shell hit the aft area of the ship, and suddenly, the Invincible exploded it is probable that the shells that caused this damage came from the Dürflinger. In what was becoming a very common occurrence on board the battlecruisers, a shell had penetrated one of the turrets and had ignited the powder in that turret, which then caused an explosion that traveled down to the magazine which caused the ship to just go boom. The Invincible basically just broke in half, with both halves sinking separately. In an interesting occurrence, the ship did not actually sink all the way, because in this area the sea was only about 180 feet deep, and the ship even cut in half was longer than that. So when the two halves of the ship sank, they went in vertical, and stuck up on both ends. Unfortunately, this did not help the men on board, and only 6 men out of over a 1,000 would survive. With the battle lines engaged, the German ships found themselves in a tough spot. Scheer himself was not at the front of the ships, instead being the 13th in line, near the middle, so as reports of the British Grand Fleet started to filter in, he could not see them. One of Scheer's lieutenants would say after the battle that the complete lack of information that Sheer had at his disposal meant that he had, quote, the foggiest idea of what was happening, end quote. As they looked to the north, none of the German captains had much information about what they were now facing. In fact, as they looked north, they could not see a single British ship at all. However, they could see German guns firing because of their muzzle flashes. This was problematic at 617 when the firing started, but as time went by and the Germans still could not identify and spot their targets, the situation became unsustainable. The Germans could only vaguely shoot in the direction of the British ships, while the British themselves could make out the German ships quite well. Shear would say of this moment that, quote, "...the entire arc stretching from north to east was a sea of fire. The flash from the muzzles of the guns was seen distinctly through the mist and smoke on the horizon, although the ships themselves were not distinguishable." It was now time for Shear to make another decision. He would write after the war that, quote, "...while the battle is progressing, a leader cannot obtain a really clear picture, especially at long ranges. He acts and feels according to his impressions." Shear would quickly decide that the only course of action was to break contact with the British, and the order he sent out to his ships was, give me a moment here, nach Starboard," or Battle About Turn to Starboard. When this order was executed, every ship in the German line was expected to make the hardest 180 degree, degree turn that they could, all simultaneously. They would then go in the exact opposite direction at the same speed. While this was executed at Jutland, it went off beautifully. At 6.36pm, Jellicoe records that he looked south and was quite confused. The ships that had been right in front of him, sailing right towards him, were now completely gone. Very few of the British captains had seen the Germans turn. They were too busy supervising their own ships. Jellicoe, unsure of where exactly the enemy was, did not immediately turn towards the Germans, because he was concerned about sailing into a trap. He instead decided to turn south, and he based this on the fact that whether or not he found the German fleet again, he thought that they might have went either south or southwest, which is in fact what they did. And by sailing south, he had come between them and their path home. Completely unrelated to all of this, it was around this time that the most critical damage to any of Jellicoe's dreadnoughts occurred when the Marlborough hit either a mine or a torpedo. Nobody seems to really know which. The explosion destroyed 30 feet of the side of the ship and resulted in the ship now having a maximum speed of just 17 knots. For now, it was able to stay in the line and keep up with the other ships. This was the only damage suffered by any of Jellicoe's dreadnoughts at this stage of the battle. And now the British fleet sailed south without any real clue what they were sailing into.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right.
1: I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis, and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com, or just look us up on your podcast app. That's The Explorers Podcast. Sheer continued on his new course for 20 minutes, steaming away from both his home port and the British. Then he did something that nobody expected. He once again sent out the order. Gefextringdung nach starboard and the High Seas fleet executed another about-face. Only this time, they were headed into instead of away from the British fleet. Why on earth would he do this? Willfully and intentionally go into the Grand Fleet? That is a fantastic question, and I'm sorry, I don't have a great answer. Shear would later claim a few different reasons for this move. The first was that quote, acknowledged purpose was to deal a blow at the center of the enemy line, End quote. Later, when the Kaiser asked him the very valid question of what on earth he was doing, he would go into a bit more detail, quote, it was as yet too early to assume night cruising order. The enemy could have compelled us to fight before dark. He could have prevented our exercising our initiative. And finally, he could have cut off our return to the German Bight. There was only one way of avoiding this, to inflict a second blow on the enemy by advancing again, regardless of cost, and to bring all of the destroyers forcibly to attack. Such a maneuver would surprise the enemy, upset his plans for the rest of the day, and if he, and if the blow fell really heavily, make easier a night escape. It also offered the possibility of a last attempt to bring help to the hard-pressed Wiesbaden, or at least of rescuing a crew, end quote. A bit of information I forgot to mention earlier, the Wiesbaden was a german light cruiser that had been disabled by a British shell slightly before Scheer ordered his original term, so it was helpless against the British. After the war, Scheer would claim that, quote, "...the fact is, I had no definite object. I advanced because I thought I should help the poor Wiesbaden, and because the situation was entirely obscure since I had received no wireless reports." So it's, it's not even clear that Scheer really knew what he was doing here, but that's okay. All, all of it to stay is that the specific reason why he made the turn is somewhat beside the point. What matters was that he did, and the Germans were going to meet the Grand Fleet again. Nothing had really changed in terms of weather or visibility. They would still be on the bad end of both, but here they go. At four, the German ships started to come within the visual range of the British ships, and once again, the firing started. First the Saint Vincent, then the Neptune, then the Revenge, then the Agincourt, so on and so forth down the British line. At 705, in an attempt to get more of his ships into the action, Jellicoe ordered all of his ships to turn towards the enemy, which meant that they would not be perfectly in the battle line, but at least they would all start engaging the Germans as soon as possible. All of this was done without really knowing exactly where the German ships were. Most of the British ships would only see a ship or two at a time due to the weather conditions, so it was really hard to get a full picture. Even after the war, Jellicoe and many other people who were even at Jutland did not seem to have a great grasp on what the precise situation of the enemy fleet was, and this really goes both ways. When I read the accounts, it seems to me that most of the British ships were just working off of instinct and guesswork, just sort of seeing shadows and going towards them or firing towards them. While the disposition of the British ships was not perfect, they were still in far better of a spot than what was happening on the German side. When the British shells started falling again among the German dreadnoughts, they still could not see anything but the flickering of gun flashes through the haze. All of this was happening at a range of no more than 14,000 yards as well, and even at this reduced distance, the Germans were still completely out of luck while the British were just hammering at home. So 10 minutes after the firing started, again Scheer decided that this was just not going to work. He had attempted something very bold, and it was clear that it was now just time to turn away. At this point, he gave three orders in close succession. The first was that the dreadnoughts should prepare for a third battle turn, once again turning away from the British. The second signal, and by far the most surprising one, was that the battle cruisers should charge into the British regardless of losses. The third was for a mass destroyer attack on the Grand Fleet to cover this movement. The second order was obviously the most important for us to talk about because it meant that the four remaining German battlecruisers would be charging, quite literally, to their deaths. Even with this fact, the four ships, heavily damaged, now under Captain Hartog of the Derflinger, designated commander because of Hipper's absence, turned towards the British at 20 knots. At 7.15, they became the sole targets of the British ships and quickly began to take damage. The Durflinger was hit square on the D turret and was only saved the explosive fate of the British battlecruisers because the fire door on the magazine held. At 7.17, just four minutes after they had started towards the British line, Captain Hartog saw another signal from Scheer, ordering him to turn away. During just the four minutes that they had attacked the British alone, the Durflinger had been hit 14 times, with the rest being hit at least five times. The fact that none of the battlecruisers were sunk during this action is just mind-boggling. They were extremely lucky. And with the final retreat of the battlecruisers, all of the German ships were now moving away from the British, and they had successfully vanished into the mist due to the results of Scheer's Third Order the torpedo attack by the German destroyers. When the order was executed, 14 destroyers were in position to mount the attack, each carrying four torpedoes. The little ships charged towards the much larger British at a speed of 30 knots, coming under fire from the primary and secondary armaments almost immediately. They were able to get a total of 31 torpedoes in the water and moving towards the British before they withdrew. The next decision by Jellicoe, with torpedoes racing towards his ships, would cause a huge amount of controversy after the battle was over. With the torpedoes in the water, Jellicoe ordered all of his ships to turn away from them, which meant that he was also ordering them to turn away from the German fleet. Jellicoe had two options at this moment. He either turns toward or away from the torpedoes, so let's talk about these two options. Trust me, there are almost entire books written about this one decision. Both of them have the advantage of presenting a much smaller bow or stern of the ship to their torpedoes, which drastically reduces the chance of a hit, which is why you only have two options here. By turning towards the torpedoes, the speed of advance of the ships would be added to that of the torpedo, and the closing speed would be very fast. This would reduce the amount of time for somebody to see the torpedo, report to the captain, for him to make a decision, and to act accordingly. By turning away, the exact opposite would happen, the speed of the ship would be subtracted from the speed of the torpedo, and the relative speed would drop precipitously. This would give each ship more time to react to the torpedoes that were sighted in the area. By turning towards them, though, Jellicoe might have been able to re-engage the German ships, which at the moment he could not see. By turning away, he would likely completely break contact with them and could only hope to catch them up during the night. By turning towards, there was a reasonable chance that he would lose some ships. With all of these pros and cons in his mind, he turned away from the threat. It should be noted that before the war, this was the suggested action, approved at all levels by the Royal Navy and all other major navies of the world. When faced with a mass torpedo attack, you just turned away. That's what you did. Still, though, Jellicoe would get a lot of flack for this decision. Not very Nelsonian, I think, is the main problem people had with it. I think in some of my previous naval episodes, I have mentioned how I find this type of hindsight criticizing to be a bit silly. From what I know, both of pre-existing naval theory and Royal Navy practices, and also what Jellicoe knew at this moment, he made the correct decision. Could he have been more bold? Sure. Could he have damned the torpedoes and went full speed ahead? Sure. But all of those decisions could have led to disaster. It is easy for armchair admirals to later second-guess these decisions when the weight of the situation is removed and the results are known. So he turned away from the Germans, and for about 10 minutes, he sailed to the southeast, away from the torpedoes. When he turned back, the British were now 12 miles from the nearest German ship, but of course they did not know that. However, at about 8pm, one of Beatty's light cruisers was able to spot a German ship, probably one of the battle cruisers, and then news made it up to Jellicoe. Therefore, he turned his ships to the west, remember he's quite a ways behind at this point, and Beatty sent his light cruisers in that direction to try and get a better bead on the situation and report back. However, by the time all of this happened, the light was failing, and for the men of both navies, they were settling in for what was sure to be a very long night.